This morning, our scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, you can find 2 Samuel chapter 2 in your pew Bibles on page 215. Again, our scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 2 uh, in the pew Bibles on page 215. We'll be reading chap- uh, chapter 2, verse 4 through 17, and then 30 to 31. Second Samuel chapter 2. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David, king over house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahaniam. He made him king over Gilead, Asheri, and Jezreel, and over, over, also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was forty years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of the time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahaniam and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool, and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, twelve men for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazirim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner, the son, and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. Chapter 2, verse 30. Then Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. Beside Ashiel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Ashahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. May God bless the reading of his word. Extra verse. So it's been a very peculiar week uh, for American social experience, social policy. On the one hand, if you noticed, this was the 150th anniversary of the surrender of General Lee to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse 150 years ago this week. On the other hand, they just, we, 
it's just celebrate or commemorate or whatever. The, the funeral, the funeral was just held for Walter Scott, a black man killed, shot down by, for running away from a policeman in South Carolina. And obviously it doesn't have to be South Carolina. That's not the point. The point is, the point is you wonder whether, how much progress we've made in the last 150 years at some level. And it ties in with this text to some degree, particularly because what we have in this biblical text in front of us this morning is a, a civil war. And you know, so it brought to mind uh, the American Civil War and Lincoln's second inaugural. So let me read to you a little bit. Uh, the, I, I want to focus on the end of his second inaugural, but let me read to you a little bit of the earlier pieces of his inaugural because it's so significant to our history and to understanding President Lincoln. He mentions that at the start of the war, one-eighth of the population were slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that the, this interest, this issue of slavery, was somehow the cause of the war. Neither party in the war, neither North nor South, neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. And remember, his second inaugural was just before the war ended. The end of the war was in sight, but had not yet transpired. Both sides read the same Bible and read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. The prayers of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Perhaps he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to slavery. Fondly we do hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by slavery's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid for another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so must still be said today. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln's point up to this is no matter how long the war lasts, God is still the same God as he's always been. But here's the part that I want to capture particularly. Because as he looks ahead to the end of the war, he puts in a final paragraph. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Sometimes, uh, not very often, but sometimes one man 
has the potential to make all the difference. As the war is coming to an end, radical reconstructionists in the North wanted to seek vengeance against the South. And the South was reeling from all the vengeance that they had suffered so far and sought peace and tranquility and continued oppression. And Lincoln stood in the middle, offending his allies in the North, in the Republican Party, and offending his erstwhile enemies in the South, calling for malice toward none and charity toward all, with firmness in the right, but to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne in the battle for his widow and his orphan, and to achieve a just and lasting peace. Sometimes, not often, one man can make all the difference. Shortly after this, Lincoln was assassinated. And then Reconstruction fell to the mantle of his vice president, Andrew Johnson. Now, Andrew Johnson had a much different attitude at several levels. On the one hand, Andrew Johnson was giving a speech before the end of the war, near to the end of the war, and someone in the crowd yelled out, Hang Jefferson Davis! And Vice President Johnson led the chant, Hang Jefferson Davis! With malice toward none, with charity toward all. On the other hand, Johnson was a firm proponent of the Union, but also of states' rights. And so when he was in charge of Reconstruction, Johnson allowed the states, the southern states, to determine the conditions under which freed slaves could vote, or the conditions under which they couldn't vote. Johnson saw the land that had been confiscated from the plantation owners during the war and had been distributed to freed slaves. Johnson oversaw the return of that land, the reconfiscation of that land from the freed slaves to the plantation owners. And he allowed the states to set up all those Jim Crow laws, which are so notorious. And he, he determined that they would not interfere. Uh, this is why Johnson got impeached. Is because the Federal Congress and the radical Reconstructionists and the militant Republicans, I mean, in those days, Republicans were militant and Democratic, Democrats were preservationists. The Congress, the Republican Congress, took Reconstruction out of his hands. They impeached him and took control over Reconstruction. And then engaged in radical Reconstruction and, you could say, reverse oppression in the South which led to the rise of the KKK and a reactionary movement. As the South became Democrat and opposed the Republicans, the Republicans then gave way in order to have, uh, maintain some kind of political power. And it took, really, you could say, a hundred years for any significant advance beyond the Emancipation Proclamation. So we have civil, civil war and we have a, a person, a president who's strategically placed to do something about it. 
but then assassinated. And the whole direction of reconstruction and the whole direction of national harmony and national character and race relations, the entire direction shifted radically drastically after Lincoln was assassinated then Johnson took over and then the Republicans the Congress took the power out of Johnson's hands and engaged in radical reconstruction and the KKK rose we can see the strategic importance that one man can sometimes play in the aftermath of a civil war now something similar to that is going on in this passage now, for those of you who are, don't come here regularly and are here today, I, I start every sermon now with this, with this caveat. We are not a political church. Right? It's just that several weeks now, the, some parts of the Bible are political. And you really can't do justice with those parts of the Bible without talking politics. And so we're in one of those segments of the Bible right now. And what we're doing is we're doing a, review, uh, a survey, a high-level survey of the entire Bible. And we're in... Second, we're beginning 2 Samuel today. We've just come out of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you wouldn't know by the titles. But 1 Kings, 2 Kings that follow, you know, these are political books. They talk about politics. And so we kind of have to talk about politics to be faithful to Scripture. And where we are right now, so at last few weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of politics as it's come up in the text. So first we saw from 1 Samuel 1 to 7, Oops, maybe we saw. Hold on a minute. We're still working on technology. The problem is not with the technology. The problem is with the user. So we first saw from 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 7. What we saw was Israel tried to use God to legitimize politics. Remember in Lincoln's uh, second inaugural, he points out how the North appealed to God. And the South appealed to God. And the North prayed to God. And the South prayed to God. The same God. And the point of 1 Samuel 1 to 7 is, God does not allow us to use him to legitimize our politics. God is the king and the sovereign one. He legitimizes those he considers legitimate. It's not up to us to try and manipulate that process. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8 to 15, there's a, basically a warning in this text not to idealize any form of government. You know, God was ruling over Israel, and Israel said, well, we want a king, we want a standing army, we want to be like the other nations. And that offended God, but God said to Samuel, let, let them have it, it's okay, let them have what they want. It, it really doesn't matter what form of government, as long as the government, 1 Samuel 8-15 to portrays, as long as the government is not corrupt. You can live with a wide range of governments, some kind of governments are Excluded, obviously. But it really doesn't matter so much. You know, and this is something we could learn, or our politicians. Or this is something our press could learn. As we view the world, remember the Arab Spring we talked about so much. Anytime something happens in the world, we read it through American screen. Oh, the Arab, Arab Spring is all about bringing in democracy. As if democracy is the best form of government for all people everywhere at every time. Arab Spring didn't turn out to be so much about democracy, it seems. So, we, the text, the biblical text, urges us against idealizing any particular form of government. Uh, obviously, I prefer to live in a democracy, a representative democracy, but, you know, the point is still from the text. Whether monarchy or theocracy, God says his people, 
can survive either way, can thrive either way, provided the government is not corrupt. And then in 1 Samuel 16 to 31, we have clear, God had called David to be king. God had revoked Saul from being king, and yet Saul was still king, and David wasn't king. And the lesson of 1 Samuel 16 to 31 is, under the normal circumstances, we do not engage in overthrow the government. That doesn't exclude something like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others did in World War II to try and depose Hitler. But under normal circumstances, we wait not just God's party in power, but we wait for God's time. And so now we take a look, we move into 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, what we have here, excuse me, I'm colorblind, I don't do a good job at color selection. What we have here is a context of civil war. Uh, in fact, people had to help me get dressed this morning. People have to help me get dressed every morning if I want to match, but there you go. If I don't care whether I match or not, in a lot of days I don't, then I don't need help. What you've got going on here, back to the point, is civil war. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 4. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron. Who and they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Do you see the oddity? The men of Judah, well, don't worry about the men part, the people of Judah, that's an oddity today, but it wasn't an oddity then. You can worry about the men part, but just as long as we don't do that today, we're okay. But the focus here is Judah, people from Judah, anointed king, to be, go known to David, to be king over the tribe of Judah. Kings don't rule tribes. Kings rule nations. And Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. So what's Judah doing? Anointing David king. David is from Judah. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like uh, us anointing Elizabeth Warren, president of Massachusetts. Now, you may be a fan of Elizabeth Warren, but it's very odd for Massachusetts to have its own president. And that's what's going on here. And then, of course, the other tribes aren't going to stand for this. So, in, uh, so what you have in um, the next passage, in verses 8 to 10, Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth. Saul had one heir. Now, when a king dies, who becomes the next king? His sons. Now, a lot of his sons had been killed already, but he had one left. So, a general who had fought for Saul took Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, and made him king, verse 9, over Gilead, Ashri, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. So you get King David over Judah. You get this other king, Ishbosheth, over the rest of Israel. And then in verse 10, so Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. So you've got this ongoing civil break and some war. So in verses 12 to 17, it turns into war. Abner son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Menahem and went to Gibeon. And then Joab, who's the, the general on the other side, and David's men, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And so, as military men are wont to do, they said, let's not just have our two armies here at a standoff across a pool, let's fight. 
And so Amnon said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand-to-hand. The old men always send the young men to battle. Let them fight hand-to-hand in front of us. So they got 12 on one side, they got 12 from the other side. All right, let them do it, Joab said. And then each man, verse 16, each man, these are all Jews. They're all Israelites. They all worship the same God. Each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side. So 12 men get up and 12 men get up. And with the senseless act common to war, they all kill each other. And they fall down together. Verse 17, the battle that day was very fierce. And Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. So the battle was fierce. And finally, David and Judah and the minority overcame Abner and Saul's descendant and the majority. And so there was war. Now, this whole section of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel verses 1 to 10, all explains why the good guy won. Oh, no, not why he good guy got. 2 Samuel 1 to 10 all explains that the good guy won. Because there's been a civil war. And think back to the American Civil War. I went to school in Oklahoma for a couple of years. I mean, Oklahoma. I was, oh, I was raised in the Northeast here, you know, Massachusetts. I went to school in Washington, D.C. I went to school in Philadelphia. I mean, you know, Northeast. This I understand. I never realized America had more than one culture until I went to Oklahoma. And they do things different. But in Oklahoma, I met some Southerners. They remembered the Civil War. You know, it's Civil War is not on my radar. We won. What do we care about? It? Oh, they remembered Sherman's March to the coast. They held me responsible for Sherman's march to the coast of Georgia. They called me a Yankee. Now, truth be told, I'm half Yankee, right? My father was the last pure-blood Yankee in my family line. But anyone north of the Mason-Dixon line, I don't even know where the Mason-Dixon line is, but they knew. And anyone north of that was a Yankee. And so I was a Yankee. So you know there's been civil war. And David, who was not in Saul's lineage, coming from Judah, not, from, not with the support of the 11 tribes, only the support of one, somehow he prevailed. And now the author of First Samuel, Second Samuel, the narrator, has to justify why it's right that David became king rather than why it's wrong. Why David should be king rather than Ishbosheth. Or why a new lineage should take over rather than the old. You see how practical some of this stuff is in Scripture. Well, look about how it's relevant to us today. But you can see this is, it's not always about theology. Oh, wait a minute. It actually is about theology. The, the only difference is that sometimes theology is not just about my private life and my personal relationship with God and my emotions. Right? Sometimes theology is about right and wrong in the world. Sometimes theology is about civil war. If you read the news this week, the new leadership in Sri Lanka is considering a South African-style truth and reconciliation 
practice uh, tribunal or a war crimes tribunal to probe the, the possibility of war crimes during the 20 or 30 year civil war they had in Sri Lanka that ended only recently. What Second Samuel 1 to 10 tells us is that this stuff, civil war, war crimes tribunals, truth and reconciliation, this matters to God because that's what's going on here in Second Samuel 1 to 10. And so Second Samuel 1 to 10 is not only saying this matters to God, it's trying to say that this is the outcome God wanted. God wanted David to be king. And it's explaining why, God, why David is a legitimate king. Not so much why God chose him, but the character of David that shows that he's a legitimate king. He was a, the point of Second Samuel 1 to 10 is that David is a good king. Maybe not great. Well, hmm. next week we'll see he wasn't a great king. This week he's a great king, which is a story in itself. Well, next week is fascinating to see how the author deals with this week. But let's take a look at this week. Why David is a good king. First of all, He's a good king because he unifies the country. And in chapters 1 to 4, what David is trying to do is what Lincoln was trying to do. Bring the country together. There's a lot of revenge killing that goes on in chapters 1 to 4. It doesn't make ancient Israel look very good. Just like there was a lot of revenge killing after the Civil War. But what the narrator is trying to say is that this was not, David did not participate in this. David opposed it all with malice toward none and, and charity toward all. This is David's response. So in chapter 1, you've got, uh, an Amalekite came and reported that Saul had been killed. The Amalekite took credit. He said, I killed Saul. So David said, you have no right to be killing a king. David wants to show that he's not supportive of killing Saul, so he kills the Amalekite. And then in the second half of chapter 1, David leads the nation in a lament, in a funeral service, for Saul and Jonathan. Saul had tried to kill David, but David demonstrates he didn't want revenge against Saul. He was grieved by the death of Saul. Chapter 3, Saul's general had killed David's general's brother. So chapter 3, they make peace and make friends, and then David's general kills Saul's general for having killed his own brother earlier. And the author of the narrator is trying to make the point, makes the point. David was not in support of this. It wasn't David's idea. And then, in chapter 4, some men take Ishbosheth. Remember David's rival? They take him and they kill him. And David says, Look, I'm not, I didn't support this. I want no part of this. So he kills the assassins for killing his rival. The point of the text is David is a noble king. Because he stands for what's true and just and right. Tries to bring the country together in a time of conflict. David is a noble king because he defeats their enemies. And, and every country has enemies on the outside. And what made David a commendable king, part of what it was, essential, was that he led the battle. And they defeated Country after country. Chapter 5, they conquered Jerusalem. Chapter 5, second half, they conquered the Philistines. Chapter 8, they conquered the Moabites. Chapter 8, they conquered the Arameans. Chapter 8, they also conquered the Edomites. And chapter 10, they conquered the Ammonites. And finally, Israel has some peace because David's a bold, faithful warrior. 
And then David's a good king because he puts God in the center of their national life. David took the ark. After he captured Jerusalem, he took the ark of the covenant with God's presences and he puts it right there in this capital city of Jerusalem. And then he seeks to build a temple. He says, not right that I should have a place, a palace for the king when God doesn't have a palace. And so David plans to build a palace for God. And God says, no, you can't. You're a person of war. You killed a lot of people. You can't do it, but your son will. And then God honors him for seeking to honor God. And so we see these attributes. And David said he unifies the country. He defeats their enemies. And he puts God in the center of their government. And these are at least three virtues that the author holds up. Three characteristics that made David a good king. Now the question for us is, to what extent should we be expecting these kind of same attributes in our government? Or in any president that leads our government? Because this is a political passage. And its application will be predominantly political and national, because the text is predominantly political and national. It unifies the country. I mean, this is clearly something we need. I mean, how often do we hear criticism of the gridlock in, in D.C.? A policy is a good policy to Republicans if it's, a, if it's promoted by Republicans, and a, a policy is a bad policy for Republicans if it's promoted by Democrats. And a policy is a good policy for Democrats if it's proposed by Democrats, and it's, a, it's something you oppose if it's proposed by Republicans. It would be nice. We can pray for this. For someone that can unite our country, and not just unite it politically with all this infighting, but unite it racially as well. We look for a, a president or a government that can defeat external enemies. Well, maybe now our situation is a little different. I want to be careful here. You may disagree with me on this point, and you're free to disagree with me. I'm just, consider this not the word of God. The word of God was what we saw a little while ago. The word of God is this, he defeated their external enemies. Now here's my, here's my reconsideration of this point today. As an let me encourage you to apply this text. Think about the application of the text. Let me illustrate, just prompt your thinking. You don't have to agree with this part. Do we need to defeat external enemies today? You know, Israel was surrounded, fighting for its territory. It had to defeat the Ammonites. It had to defeat the Edomites. It had to defeat the Moabites because they were surrounded and they were threatened. Israel may still need to fight for its national existence. I haven't heard that Mexico or Canada is either threatening to you know, invade us. And we don't have to protect ourselves from Alabama or Mississippi. Um, you know, sorry, I cheap humor if you're from Alabama or Mississippi. <laughs> I figured that was safe. I didn't say, you know, Ohio. I didn't say New York City, right? Okay. Maybe instead of valuing a government or a president that saves us from external enemies now today, maybe we'll want to look for presidents or governments that don't get us in unnecessary wars. But you may differ on that one, and you have the freedom to. See, there's no Bible verses, right? This is, this is application, not Bible. Do we want a government or a president that's going to put God at the center of the government? Again, we're not a theocracy anymore. So we can take pleasure when an evangelical reaches the presidency, but that may not be a requirement that we should lay down 
that somebody share our faith and convictions. Martin Luther, founder of the Protestant movement, said, at a time when, when Muslims were invading from North Africa into Europe, when they were invading into Spain and threatening Germany, Martin Luther said, as a German, better to be governed by a competent Muslim than a foolish Christian. So, so maybe we don't have to have God at the center of our government as long as he's the center of our lives and the center of our community together. Maybe he doesn't have to be the center of our government. However you come out on the application, these are at least three characteristics that this book highlights for David. And the, David, and the biblical text is prompting us to think about it. What should it look like today for us? Your conclusion on what it should look like may differ from my conclusion. It doesn't have to agree. We have to agree with what the Bible says, and then we think about what that means today, and that there's going to be some leeway, and there's going to be some tolerance. As we, But what the Bible does tell us is this. We should care about these things. Not just about our personal relationship with Jesus, but about government and politics. But I don't want to end here, because we're going to find out that David was not such a great king after all. In a very limited sense, he was a good king. But we have a great king. On all three of these points, remember what scripture has to say about Jesus. That Jesus, first of all, that he unifies, not just Israel, but the world. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, the elder John writes, I looked in his vision, and before me there was a great crowd that no one could count from every tribe and nation and people and language, standing before the throne. Christ, the King, unites all people of all ethnicities, of all races, of all nations. Christ, the King, defeats all enemies. Revelation chapter 19 I saw the beast and I saw the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who would perform the signs on his behalf. The two of them were thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and the rest were killed with the sword. Christ will reign victorious over this whole world. And Christ puts God at the center of the world and of its government. Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Second Samuel 1 to 10 tells us to care about politics, to care about elections, to care about national government. Revelation warns us, though, reminds us, that government and politicians and kings and presidents will always disappoint. But one day a king is coming back who will rule with a government which will not disappoint, with a government that will unite the world, that will defeat all of its enemies, and that will put God at the center of the universe where he belongs. Let's pray together.
Father, we look forward to the return of Christ and the restoration of all good government. In the meantime, we ask you to guide us by your word and by your spirit that we might engage our government with integrity and biblical values. We ask you to guide us by your word and by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.